She doesn't respond at all, does she? What do you mean? She says nothing. No, he says nothing. It's been a while since I've watched Notting Hill. Yeah, he says nothing and they all give him a hard time. He just looks at her and she leaves. <laughs> I'm just a man standing in front of a girl. <laughs> in the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that... Hello and welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson and as usual I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. So tonight we're going to be talking about antisocial personality disorder. So we're going into kind of the criminal realm, which I think isn't entirely familiar to either of us, but we've found incredibly fascinating. As clinicians. As well, clinicians. Personally, I guess, as well. <laughs> what are you wanting to disclose on Good this start. public public podcast? <laughs> it's only international. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to get things started with an example from Hunter. Before we do, as usual, could you guys rate, review, do all the nice things? Everything's at Two Shrinks Pod. All right, over to you. So antisocial PD, antisocial personality disorder, fascinating disorder, and I think it's I think there's a real fascination with crime mm. in popular culture, and like it seems to be like a lot of like true crime podcasts and yeah. things like that. And so I think if you like. That kind of stuff. This should be hopefully a very interesting episode. And actually, probably before we launch into things, we should do a little bit of a disclaimer that even though we won't be talking a lot about actual criminal acts at the start, we'll give a couple of examples that do have a bit of that feel to them, might be a little bit disturbing. Yeah. So So for the next next couple of minutes, there might be some examples. Yep. After that. And then from after that, it'll be, if you've got a problem with that stuff, just skip forward a little bit. So my example's not graphic Mm -hmm. but i think it gets at the real psychological flavor of what antisocial personality and i guess psychopathy is all about so elton mcneil psychologist described a case in 1967 of his friend named dan so dan made a big scene about the prawn dish he had ordered and when mcneil had asked him about whether he deliberately contrived the scene because he wasn't hungry dan laughed loudly in agreement and said well what the hell they'll be on their toes next time McNeil says, was that the only reason for this display? And he says, well, no, I wanted to show you how gutless the rest of the world is. If you shove, they all jump. Next time I come in, they'll be all over me to make sure that everything is exactly as I want it. That's the only way they can tell the difference between class and plain ordinary. When I travel, I go first class. Uh, McNeil continued on with like, how do you feel as a person, as a fellow human being? Dan says, well, who cares? And laughing, he says, you know, if they were on top, they'd do the same to me. The more you walk on them, the more they like it. It's like royalty in the old days. It makes them nervous if everyone is equal to everyone else. Just watch. When we leave, I'll put my arm around that waitress, ask if she still loves me, pat her on the fanny. She'll be ready to roll over any time I wiggle my little finger. This case example continues on. Dan and McNeil actually had a friend who'd committed suicide. And when this happened, Dan didn't call McNeil, but the others did. And... When McNeil actually finally caught up with Dan, he's like, well, you know, that's the way the ball bounces. But Dan in public was very different. He collected all the money and personally presented it to the widow. And then in keeping with his character, remarked that she had a sexy body and Hmm. really interested him. So there was like a long succession of events leading McNeil to conclude that these incidents painted a grisly picture of a lifelong abuse of people for Dan's amusement and profit. He was adept at office politics, told him casually of an unbelievable set of deceptive ways to deal with the opposition. Character assassination, rumour-mongering, modest blackmail, seduction and barefaced lying were the least of his talents. He was a jackal in the entertainment jungle, 
a jackal who feasted on the bodies of those who slaughtered professionally. Mm. So it's pretty graphic. It and, is. And so, and just to sort of finish off the case, McNeil, in being a good psychologist, obviously, he inquired a bit to his history and Dan related this story. I can remember the first time in my life when I began to suspect I was different from most people. When I was in high school, my best friend got leukemia and died, and I went to his funeral. Everyone else was crying and feeling sorry for themselves, and as they were praying to get him into heaven, I suddenly realized I wasn't feeling anything at all. He was a nice guy, but what the hell? That night, I thought about it some more and found found that I wouldn't miss my mother and father if they died, and that I wasn't too nuts about my brothers and sisters for that matter. I figured there wasn't anybody I really cared for, but then I didn't need any of them anyway, so I rolled over and went to sleep. Hmm. Yep. So, creepy? Creepy, yeah. Have you ever met anyone who kind of fits into that uh, vibe? I reckon I met some hmm. when I worked in drug and alcohol Yeah. that I was exposed to at the clinic, hmm. but probably didn't work with. Yeah. Yeah, it is a creepy... I don't think I've, like, I don't think in my personal life, I don't think I've really, that I would definitely say that they've been like that. Yeah. Interesting. What about you? I have met probably one or two and one was a a child who perfectly captured how he remembers feeling as a child and it certainly fit with that And, and this boy had figured out that they'd been on school camp and all of the other kids were missing their parents and he came back and kind of said, it's, it's weird, I don't have missy feelings. Wow. Um, and then he kind of kept on going through it and realized that he didn't have feelings like the other kids. Yeah. And it wasn't the detachment that you see other times because he didn't really mind. It was kind of just like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Like there's not there's not a – when we talk about detached, it's like you notice that the absence of it in yeah. a kind of a – the num- absence means something. Like a numbness. Yeah. 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 It was kind of just indifferent. Like, huh, I don't have that color hair. Mm. Oh, well. Oh, well. Yeah. Interesting. So what's what's your, you've got a creepy example. example. Yeah, I do. I think there's a lot of kind of serial killer examples when you think about this disorder. The top ones that always come up are people like Jeffrey Dahmer and things like that who did some quite graphic, horrific Mm. things. And there's been a lot of movies and things about them. The one that I sort of, I had a bit of a look around and came across one that I'd forgotten about, which which was Harold Shipman. Do you remember hearing about him? He was a GP in England and he was arrested for murder in 98. He ended up being convicted of 13 murders, but then um, they looked, yeah, they then looked into it further though after he was convicted and the chief investigator estimates that he actually killed about 250 what? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So he's kind of dubbed Dr. Death. He used to kill people by overdosing them on morphine. Yeah, right. So they were mostly elderly women, like about 80%. At the start, he kind of claimed that, oh, they must have accidentally overdosed themselves or they just happened to be using too much to control their pain. So he was interviewed a couple of times. He ended up being in prison I think for about eight years and then died by suicide while he was in prison. And before he did, there were a few kind of letters that were released. So in one, he says, no one saw me do anything. As for stealing the morphine off the terminally ill, again, no one saw me do it. And then he said, the police complain I'm boring. No mistresses, home abroad, money in Swiss banks. I'm normal. If this is boring, I am. And so there's just this kind of detached... Callousness. This is callousness. This is what I'm doing... They aren't sure exactly how many 
patients he killed because um, he arranged for them to be cremated. They've kind of got an estimation. They know how many patients died while in his care and they've managed to kind of figure out which ones. It was probably earlier than than what you would expect. But when we were looking through the literature, what came up a lot was the sort of distinction between psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder. In public discourse, it's kind of talked about a lot as well, kind of interchangeably. Yeah, so someone's a like psychopath. Psychopath versus the, what the DSM would call an antisocial personality. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they're often just used interchangeably, particularly in public settings. The textbook that we're drawing on for a lot of this stuff, uh, Millen, he talks about the, the difference between the psychopaths, sociopaths and people with antisocial personality disorder. And he kind of says that psychopaths were just born like that. Essentially, it's kind of a dispositional thing. Tends to be seen right from infancy. It's, you know, they can have perfectly loving parents in nice environments. Whereas sociopaths, it arises through socialization. So they tend to have more traumatic events in early childhood, that sort of thing. And they talk a lot about how the work of Cleckley and Hare, who I think you'll talk about a little bit, sort of help to explain the internal world of someone with no empathy. They kind of characterize it a bit more. And I was reading that and thinking that when I studied a unit in forensic psych in undergrad, I felt like there was a different explanation or something that was a little bit clearer in detangling the two. Mm-hmm. So I went and dug out my old books, which, nice. as you know, I hoard. Um, <laughs> I've got a box of my old uni notes. Yeah, yeah, it's important. Um, and so I found a book by Bartle and Bartle, which is like the, I think, a pretty standard forensic psych textbook for undergrads. Um, and they talk about how antisocial personality disorder is more narrow than psychopathy because it really defines things by behavior. Whereas psychopathy has a whole range of different different things that characterize it. So it includes things around empathy, around relationships. My favorite is that here, well, he says that they have a parasitic lifestyle. They yeah. kind of live off other people. It's kind of this history of exploitation and a touch of criminality, but it's not so much the focus. Um, Whereas and I think ASPD is 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 much more a diagnosis of criminality. Mm. And we're going to get into the criteria in just yeah. a sec. But so I thought I'd read a brief quote from Hare, which kind of captures psychopaths pretty Great. well. So he says, psychopaths are social predators who charm, manipulate and ruthlessly plough their way through life, leaving a broad trail of broken hearts, shattered expectations and empty wallets. Completely lacking in conscience and empathy, they selfishly take what they want and do as they please, violating social norms and expectations without the slightest sense of guilt or regret. So it's just this picture of someone who does what they want. Yeah, and it, as you, it, we probably, hopefully, won't be repeating ourselves too much. But no. this is just like this is this, this is, is the like core of what the it core is. Core of what it is, and yeah. when you get down to it, when someone's lacking that stuff, yeah. then the possibilities, unfortunately, are endless yeah. as to what they could do. Exactly. So I think that the main thing is that you can meet criteria for psychopathy and not commit any criminal acts. So you can be a really, you know, the common example is a really ruthless CEO who's quite happy to just, you know, stomp on anyone to get where they want to go, but they're not actually doing anything that's illegal. It's kind of just that manipulating, charming, et cetera. And they can be particularly cunning. Exactly. So there's recent research done in Melbourne by Ogloff and colleagues that they looked at whether you could distinguish between psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder. And so they found a kind of inverse relationship. So 
65% of people who were high in psychopathy met the criteria for antisocial PD. Yeah. But only 5.5% of people with antisocial met the criteria for Psycho- psychopathy. Yeah. So it kind of covers about a third yeah. of psychopathy, but it's not It's not all. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of antisocial in psychopaths, but yeah. there's not a lot of psychopaths in antisocial. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the prevalent, general prevalence kind of shows this as well. Like there's about double the amount of people with antisocial personality disorder as those who meet the criteria for psychopathy. Interesting. Yeah. And in forensic settings, it's way more. So it's, you know, around 10% for people with psychopathy who are offenders, Mm -hmm. but over 80% meet criteria for antisocial personality disorder Mm -hmm. in offending Mm -hmm. populations. So it's kind of, it's interesting. And I think the thing that I was thinking while I was reading it was kind of like, it's interesting, but why does it matter? And then I stumbled across an article that was about reoffending. And essentially it matters in terms of reoffending. So it people can have criminal behaviour and it, it their level of psychopathy or whether they've got antisocial PD influences how likely they are to reoffend. Mm. It's a lot higher if they're higher in psychopathy and if they have antisocial personality disorder. Both of these things kind of increase the risk that they'll reoffend pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah, and that makes sense once you sort of start to understand what the criteria are. Yeah. So, should we go do that? Yeah. Yeah. So, what we're going to do is we talk about in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual 5, they have a set of criteria. I think it's there's seven criteria mm-hmm. and I think you have to have three. Yeah. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about like what the disorder level is and then we're going to talk about what the trait or trade level yeah. would be or mm-hmm. the style, like an antisocial style versus antisocial disorder level. Mm-hmm. If you follow, you, you'll, you'll kind of get it as we go through it. Yeah. So criteria one, those with the disorder violate social norms by repeatedly doing acts that break the law. So destroying property, harassing others and stealing. The style is someone who puts their own value system above that of the group and is occasionally caught up in conflict as a result. Disorder is deceitful. So repeatedly lies, uses aliases, cons others for personal profit or for pleasure. The style is kind of slippery. It, they finesse critical points and spin objects, events to their advantage without outright deception. Criteria three would be that is impulsivity, and this is like a really interesting aspect of the disorder. Mm. They fail to plan ahead, so like without consideration of consequences for others or self. So if you take a history, you know they've got sudden changes in jobs, sudden mm-hmm. changes in relationships, sudden changes in residences, yeah. without really kind of any forethought. Whereas the style is spontaneous and self-indulgent, but able to know when failure to delay gratification would be problematic or would violate social norms or it would lead to some kind of substantial harm to themselves or others. Yeah. Criteria four would be like those with the disorder are irritable and they're aggressive and they usually, like from history again, like they would have repeated fights or assaults um, and this could include beating their partner mm-hmm. uh, or their child. The style is assertive and it creates a felt physical presence yeah you can just like the the, yeah. the, the, the evil presence mm. reckless in safety of themselves or others so it's like kind of like you, you sort of start to see like it fits with this impulsivity and stuff like that so they so this would be seen say driving behavior so they drink drive they speed they have accidents or they're reckless in like their sex you mm-hmm. know they just have lots of sex or like do it in a particular way that is dangerous to themselves or others mm-hmm. they would have substance use that's risky or they would like neglect like if they have a child, they would neglect that child yeah. or they would like parent in such a way that that child would be put in outright danger. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the style, they see themselves as more resistant to risk than most, but they're not 
impulsively careless or foolhardy. Number six, a constant irresponsibility. So this would be like failure to sustain consistent work behavior. So they'd be unemployed or they'd have lots of absences from work or they would fail to honor financial obligations, defaulting on debts, not paying child support, that kind of stuff. Whereas the style prefers to remain free of external constraints. So spends on joys of the present, not to save for the future. Yeah. The last criteria is perhaps one of the most interesting things I reckon. Mm. It's like the disorder has a lack of remorse. So they're just indifferent to or rationalize having hurt, mistreated or stolen from others. They blame victims for being foolish and deserving of their fate or are just indifferent from it. I think that's the one that really feels different when you meet someone who has this or if you hear some of those kind of quotes from people. That's that's the thing that you kind of go, oh, I'm not comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they talk about the, the triad of la- lack of empathy inflated self-appraisal and superficial charm mm-hmm. is is maybe sort of the distinguishing features of the disorder. Yeah. And also, like you sort of said, predictive recidivism mm. in prison populations. You know, it's just sort of some other features. They are arrogant. They feel that ordinary work is beneath them. Like empathy, they're callous to others. They have this glib superficial charm. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like verbally facile. Like so, they would use jargon that seems impressive if mm. you don't know the topic. Yeah. Yeah, right? Prevalence-wise, 12 months prevalence is like 0.2 to 3.3%. Mm-hmm. What was interesting is that the prevalence is varies according to the setting. Yeah. And so they talked about the high, in the DSM, the highest prevalence is in severe samples of males with alcohol abuse mm-hmm. disorder. And yeah, so substance use settings and forensic prison settings. or And also like higher in samples of like poor or like, mm. uh, like adverse socioeconomic conditions. Yeah. I've got a little bit of stuff about childhood events that lead onto that in my gender section, so that will okay. that will work. <laughs> so pop culture, mm. Hannibal Lecter, yep, psychopath. So that's in the Thomas Harris books, yeah, um, and also in the movie played by Anthony Hopkins, mm-hmm. which we watched just the other week. We did; it was great. <laughs> and I like I was watching it. I was like thinking, oh, he's overplaying it. And after all, no, nope, no, no, I feel it. He's super creepy. The one I thought of today when I was looking at things was. Kevin, and we need to talk about Kevin. Oh, I haven't seen that. Mm. And it's a it's a perfect example of, you know, one of the side things to the DSM criteria is that you're supposed to have met criteria for a related disorder in your adolescence. Yeah, conduct disorder. Yeah, and it's a perfect example. If you want to see an example of kind of like right from sort of toddlerhood all yeah. the way through to a violent act being committed, it's quite a good example of that kind of indifference the whole way through. Yeah, so, so conduct disorder is this pattern of behaviour where the rights of others are not respected or other major age-appropriate social norms mm. are violated. And so there's like four areas of that, which is aggression to people and animals, destruction of property, deceitfulness, theft, or serious violations of rules. So the two things that come to mind mm. is if a kid's like burning houses down yeah. or if they um, torture animals, yeah. then uh, they're probably going to be antisocial or a psychopath. Yeah. And there's that triad of things that predicts later violent behaviour and two of them are that. The third is bedwetting, which is interesting. Like yeah, right. past an age appropriate thing. And the the fire setting, I think it's past ten. So it's kind of normal to try and figure out fire when you're in early primary school. Yeah. But if it keeps on going yeah, and there's some issues. I think there are also some other issues with like that can cause bedwetting. So yeah, if you know exactly. someone, yeah, it's not it's not isolated. And in fact, those three things can be caused by all sorts of 
issues. Essentially, it's a, a kid saying they're not in a good place. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. So, uh, pop culture, like Tony Soprano mm-hmm. in The Sopranos, yep. talks about the, like whether he's like a psychopath or antisocial. Yeah. And I thought what it really, I was thinking about movies, like one of my favorite movies is Goodfellas mm-hmm. by Martin Scorsese. If you've not seen that film, it's a great, great film. But there's a character in that played by Joe Pesci. Mm. And I think he kind of gets at that kind of, there's like an aggressiveness. Um, there's a real lack of forethought yeah. around a lot of stuff, quite cunning. Mm. And and kind of just does stuff like, you know, offs a couple of people because yeah. he's angry or because he's, and they haven't really thought it through. Mm. And when he's, yeah, they kill a guy and then like, well, the other guy's like, what are we going to do? I haven't got any lime yeah. to, to, to bury the body with. Yeah. And, you know, like. This hasn't followed. It's sort of this like comic moment, but at the same time, it's just like, yeah. oh my God. So do you have any yeah. other examples? Uh, yeah. One that I found that I, I found amusing was The Grinch prior to heart growth. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there was this great blog post where someone went through the criteria and matched it to the Grinch before his heart grows that really he doesn't care about anyone else and he's kind of exploitative and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, yeah. And then um, a Clockwork Orange has a yeah has a fair bit of that sort of flavor to it. Yeah. And the Joker in like Batman, Dark Knight, and things. Yeah, like that. right. I mean, so they're all pretty extreme mm. examples. They are. Yeah. It's actually it's it's interesting because it the the same blog post was kind of saying that they went through movies and looked at the most commonly shown personality disorders, and antisocial was the most commonly shown. It had almost a quarter of all yep. personalities disorders shown in movies, which makes sense. It's kind of that archetypal villain. Yeah, and there's sort of archetypal bad male. Yeah, I think was I think the prevalence is three to one. Yeah. The, for men to women, mm-hmm. classic. It's like a guy. He's angry. He's yeah. impulsive. Yeah. Doesn't really learn from mistakes. Mm-hmm. Sort of abuses people. Ir- irresponsible. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of this cluster of mm. kind of feels uncontainable. Like yeah, that he's just uncontainable. Keep on going. But they could also be quite intoxicating and fun mm. initially. Yeah. And also they'd be like the strong man, mm. which I think some people find desirable. Yeah. For complicated reasons, mm. and then they get caught up in them, and then they can't get away. Yeah, so it's quite mm. interesting in terms of history. I was going to talk about the so in the first version of the DSM, they talked about those with a sociopathic personality disturbance, were irresponsible individuals who are always in trouble, lived in abnormal moral environments, as well as exhibiting sexual deviations, mm-hmm. which included like transvestite, yeah, homosexuals, all this kind of stuff. Which obviously, like that was sort of that era, yeah. DSM two, they revised it and they kind of they got rid of the sexual deviation part. No loyalty to groups, individuals, or social values. Selfish, callous, irresponsible. Don't feel guilt. Doesn't learn from experience or punishment. Impulsive, frustration tolerance low, and they mm-hmm. blame others. DSM three doesn't really change it that much, but says that the, the behaviour is chronic and starts before fifteen. And then DSM four, they say you have to have conduct disorder in childhood. Yeah. So it's sort of been hanging around for a while. Mm. The history of it is that, like, in sort of the 1800s, they Parnell, I'm probably saying that wrong, talked about a madness called la folie raisonnette, mm-hmm. which is a tendency to towards impulsive and self-damaging acts in the presence of unimpaired intelligence and full awareness of actions. Mm. So basically, psychopathology in the absence of mental confusion. Yeah, and then 
Pritchard talks about moral insanity, so which is like despite understanding choices before them, their conduct was swayed by overwhelming compulsions, mm-hmm. this inability to guide themselves according to an inner sense of right, right or wrong or goodness or responsibility. So it's not really a scientific understanding, but mm-hmm. it sort of seems appealing because they're just like serial killers. It's yeah. so difficult to understand. Like, why yeah. would you eat yeah. your victims? Like, yeah. why would you do this it's awful, awful stuff? There are some attempts and theories to link anatomical defects with character defects. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them seem quite amusing now. They're like, <laughs> if you were left-handed or if you had a projecting lower jaw or a sloping forehead, then... I'm just inspecting your forehead given that you're left-handed. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> you're good. Um, that's it. That's it. If Amy doesn't turn up next week. Yeah, no, we know um, why. That's it. The, but, you know, but it holds – so it seems amusing, but it holds with an idea that somehow they're mm. biologically different. Yeah. There's something wrong. The idea that, like, if there was a brain center controlling morality, then you could perhaps be morally blind mm-hmm. just like you could be colorblind or something like that. So this was sort of replaced by this idea of psychopathic inferiority. Mm-hmm. by Koch in 1891. So this inferiority of brain constitutions. So the inferiority, inferiority part of the label was dropped and just became psychopathic. Mm-hmm. And then in 1941, Checkley refined the concept of psychopathy to its current form and in a book that's called The Mask of Sanity, which was apparently mm-hmm. like a bestseller. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really want to read it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and so it talks about like antisocial PD behaviours are obvious Whereas psychopaths are often present as normality. This mm. is the mask of sanity. They believe, like and you were saying, believe to come from good homes, but still destroy lives yeah. without shame, remorse or conscious. Yeah. Pathological liars. And they have this inability to understand the emotional dimension of language, mm. particularly attachment or yeah. empathy. Hare, as you were talking about before, he developed and his colleagues developed a checklist from Checkley's list of characteristics. And then they developed a clinical rating scale, which they've revised. Mm. So, I mean, I won't go through. But it's interesting. It's kind of how it all fits together and that it's it's probably one of the disorders that has the strongest kind of social edge to it. That there's sort of like that morality aspect of like what you're doing is morally wrong comes through in the criteria and stuff like that, which it doesn't for a lot of things these days. No. Like it's slowly being stripped out. (laughs) Yeah, because I think that there's a level of... You know, there's less judgment in psychiatry and psychology now. I mean, mm. people say that we do judge them, and we do. Yeah. But, yeah, I think there's a much more... It's trying a process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there's much more of a trying to have things scientific. Mm. But I think the marker of this disorder frequently is that they do wrong things. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly. Uh, so, in terms of gender stuff, you mentioned before that the ratio is off. So, it's 3% male, 1% female. and 3% male? Or you mean... Three three percent three times three percent of men meet the criteria. One percent, yeah, one percent oh, of females. I thought it was just the ratio. Was it's like, also the ratio, but it just happens to be a percentage right. as well. <laughs> I'm so confused. Yeah, so the presentation might be different as well across males and females. So uh, they found that females tend to present with more relationship issues, job issues, and violence, whereas males have they have job issues as well and violence, but then they also have more traffic offences, accidents that that they've caused. Yeah, right. I looked up and found a survey that was done in 2013, which was a national epidemiological survey on alcohol and related issues. And they had a massive sample of people who then in that met the criteria for 
antisocial personality disorder. And so they're able to ask them about their childhoods, about their adult lives, disorders they've been diagnosed with, all sorts of things. And so what that showed was that the childhood circumstances were different for males and females. So women reported more frequent emotional neglect, uh, sexual abuse, parent-related adverse events, so things like a parent having a substance use disorder, Mm. and just overall adverse events in childhood. Women present with less violent antisocial behaviour, but higher aggressiveness and irritability than males. Mm. In adulthood, women have higher rates of victimisation, so they're almost 19 times as likely to have been sexually assaulted as adults. 19 times. Yeah, and seven times more likely to be attacked by a partner. They have greater impairment, so that's both general functioning and they have higher rates of mood and anxiety disorders and higher rates of narcissistic personality disorder than Mm. males. And they have lower social support. For males, none of the traumatic events that they were asked about were higher than those experienced by women in childhood or adulthood. Mm. But they did have higher rates of drug or substance use disorders. And then the final thing was that the age of onset was about a year later for females. Hmm. So in adolescence, it sort of got started a little bit later. Mm. What do you make of all that? Well, it kind of it kind of fits in terms of kind of responding to those traumatic events. Like, you know, there are whole different ways to abo- to respond to trauma. But those things strike me as perhaps an attempt to gain control. And that's certainly what some of the theories say. It's kind of like I've had this negative experience in childhood. I'm going to exert control, sort of overcompensate for that lack of control Mm. and dominate other people. The impairment side of things is interesting. and, And the article is really highlighting that probably there needs to be different programs for men and women who have this disorder. You know, perhaps women don't don't need the sort of drug and alcohol services as often but there's more things about sort of general functioning so it spanned all sorts of things like health and mental health and things like that kind of had a more broad spectrum feel to it than the males Mm. so it kind of yeah highlighted that gap i think a lot of the services are directed more towards the typical presentation and probably fit the fact that far more men than women have this disorder you're right yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so we thought that we'd go through a few different theories. Shall I start us off with biological? Yeah. So we're going to go. We're going to do biological, psychodynamic, interpersonal, cognitive, and evolutionary. So this is this. We're going to go and go deep into psych stuff. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we won't lose you. Uh, we will try and keep it as quick as possible. Yeah. But if you are a fan of psych stuff, it's probably going to be. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's part of the psych stuff is that, you know, different people have come in at different times and tried to make sense of the same thing. Yeah. I, mean, I certainly found that the psychodynamic and the cognitive stuff, actually, there was a fair bit of overlap. Yeah. So I'll start off with biological. So a lot of the research on biological causes of this disorder has focused on psychopathy because it's been a concept that's been around for longer. Yeah. It's been a more kind of um, more researched. So they kind of highlight that these things may or may not apply to antisocial personality disorder. As we talked about before, there's 
odd overlaps. But essentially, the first group of theories are around temperament. So this is your general functioning as an infant. So some babies are perceived as anxious and some are sort of more settled. And it's kind of those descriptive things that are spoken about babies before they can even you know, yeah. communicate so that an, innate, innate. innate processing and expression of emotions. Yeah. People who are later on you know, assessed to meet the criteria for psychopathy tend to be judged as tough and aggressive as, as infants and toddlers. They're fearless, impulsive, reactive and sensation-seeking, which all kind of makes sense. It can be impacted by parenting. So there was some sort of theories about the fact that most parent, like the whole cluster of different parenting styles could have a negative impact on someone who has these predispositions. But probably the best bet of kind of, I guess, reducing the impact of those predispositions was an authoritative, warm, but firm style Mm. um, that that would kind of provide some boundaries, but not be too critical yeah listen to pod four if you don't know what we're talking about yeah cleckley who was you know one of the first theorists around psychopathy believed that psychopaths have an inborn inability to understand and express emotional meaning so if they can't understand the impact of their behavior they don't develop any sort of sense of conscience or a sense of remorse yeah don't perceive it it's not there and then instead of genuinely developing it uh, some people seek to self-educate. So they'll, you know, either study things that then help them learn how other people respond. They'll read things. They'll watch movies, mimic behavior, which then feeds into that later on charismatic kind of inviting mm. inviting aspect. If you want to read something really creepy, is like read the psychopath test. Yeah. There's some really great, there is descri- some great, great, great descriptions from it's Mark interesting. Ronson on that. Yeah. And in terms of sort of neuro ways of looking at this, they've found that there's a difference in frontal lobe development. So that's the, the part of your brain that develops last. It's usually sort of adolescence through to 25. And it really focuses on the cognitive parts of our brain. So it's stuff around morality, managing our impulses, things around critical thinking, stuff like that. And they found that whereas most people would have this kind of rush of blood flow to that region when they're looking at something that's emotionally evocative or reading something, that psychopaths don't. They still have it. There's not that same blood flow. The same physiologically. So whereas most people, if they're told that they're going to have, say, an electric shock in a couple of minutes, their heart will start beating faster, psychopaths don't have that. They don't respond at all, or they might have just a little increase as the shock is happening. Yeah. But it's quite flat. Yeah. So yeah. In, in Silence of the Lambs, yeah. like, so there's a bit where they're, the FBI agent, Clara Starling, is about to meet Hannibal Lecter and they're briefing her on him. Yeah. And they say, you know, you need to be really, really careful around him. One time complained he had, you said he had chest pains and they hooked mm. him up for a e, e, ECG. Yeah. And then he attacked the nurse. Yeah. And then they say as a throwaway line, it's like they had the heart rate monitor on him. And the entire time during the, the attack, his heart rate didn't go above like yeah. 75. Yeah. Right. Which is exactly kind of what you're talking about. Exactly. Right? That just. So I know that's it's a fictional not... example, but I, that's, that's drawn very close exactly. to what you're talking about. And so if you put those things together, it kind of makes a bit of sense. It's kind of like you've got someone who's novelty seeking out in the world. They don't really have a desire to avoid harm because they don't have that anticipating anxiety that the rest of us have of kind of like, oh, I don't yeah. want to do something dangerous. And they don't really depend on external rewards because it's kind of like what happens in the world. Eh. So well, you can not, see... Not, they don't think that far ahead. No. So it, you can kind of see how those things go together to someone who might do something harmful. Yeah, yeah. It sort of, yeah, all fits. Anyway. 
So what does psychodynamic have to say? So psychodynamic is really, really simple. So psychodynamic, you have the id, the ego, and the Mm superego. So really quick brief on psychodynamics. So the id is primitive. It works on the pleasure principle. You have urges. Mm -hmm. You've got to follow those urges. So when you're born, the theory is you just have the id, right? Like if you have an urge... You've got no way to manage the fact that you're hungry. That's it. So you've got to just get your needs met. So And then as an adult... Like you have other edges as well. So it's like, you know, if someone angers you, you want to kill them or hurt them. Someone, If, if someone excites you, mm. you want to mate with them. Yeah. Those kinds of things. Like really, really primitive drives, right? In normal development, you develop the superego over time through socialization, which constrains this immediate gratification. Mm-hmm. You need to do this to be successful, right? Like, yeah. you know, if you can delay things and respect others' rights, you can then do things. Say if you want a, want a family, you have got to study so you can get a good job, so you can support the family and, mm. can, and meet a partner, be attracted to a partner, that kind of stuff, right? So there's all these kinds of things that you have to delay. And through that, you learn about respecting others' people others' lives, you develop a conscience, which is a representation of parental values and prohibitions. Mm -hmm. And so you know what to do to be self-actualized and you also know what not to do, right? So you've got that kind of internal right-wrong from everything around you. Yeah, that's it. This is like, okay, to be a good person or to be a happy person or to be a successful person, I know that I should do X and Y and I know that I shouldn't do, you know, A and B, something like that. So, and you feel guilt if you go against this and you feel pride when you live up to that, right? And mm-hmm. the ego essentially just balances the two, right? So, that's psychodynamic theory. 101, yeah. Right? So, ASPD, basically the superego doesn't develop mm-hmm. and they're just left with the id. From this perspective, this just explains their behavior and aspects. No guilt, no lack of moral confidence, focus towards sex, aggression, egocentric, immediate gratification, poor planning, no frustration tolerance. Yeah. Right. I want to do this, so I do it. Yeah, that's yep. it. So without this like internal voice, mm. this, without this incensor, they free to do whatever they want. Yeah. Others are material for gratification. They're part of the furniture of existence mm-hmm. to be manipulated, used, and discarded. Simple. Con- yeah, yeah, like yeah, like sort of <laughs> yeah. what it says that like, you know the consequences of actions, social rules don't even feature unless it's I don't want to get caught. Yeah. What was interesting is that Millen talked about. Some antisocials have a greater development of the reality principle, which impacts upon their presentation. Essentially, they can be highly intelligent in evading social constraints mm-hmm. to exploit others so they can satisfy their own needs. So they're more subtle, planful, while still being egocentric and remorseless. Yeah. I.e. scary. Yeah. <laughs> which kind of, the first thing I think of is that GP that we spoke about at the start, yeah. you know, he he was able to get away with a lot because he could kind of just be subtle and plan it out yeah. rather than lashing out. Yeah, yeah. He, he could fit in yeah. much more. This is how I achieve my ends. So despite not understanding emotions, they can learn to adapt to them mm-hmm. because it's emotion is the currency of communication. So they can be good assessing situations, feign empathy to deceive and manipulate charm often to obtain positions of great power. Mm. I think one of the things about therapy with this group is that they've tried to do stuff, like they've tried to do social skills yeah. training and they learned that, that psychopaths just then ended up using those skills to manipulate people more effectively. Yeah, yeah. And the other part of that was that they did stuff in prisons in a similar, similar way and they found that 
what it did was to teach people the impact of what they'd been doing to them, which they quite enjoyed. <laughs> so they hadn't, they, they kind of went, hang on a minute, I didn't know that that was a scary thing. Oh. Oh, great. Oh, so when they make that face, that That's means a this scary, thing. Uh, yeah, awesome. That yeah. yeah. So it's terrifying. Yeah, it's absolutely terrifying when you yeah. really start to think about it. Mm. So. So basically, without the superego, they don't worry about letting other people's down so they don't feel guilt. And as a result, they don't really have defensive mechanisms mm. like, you know, because they're mainly impervious to shame and guilt and anxiety. Mm. Although it does actually say later on like they, they do often present with like mood disorders and things mm. like that. They can be narcissistically grandiose. So they... And so this might be seen in bragging about their serious yep. but not petty offences, mm-hmm. right? I did all this stuff and there was this quote about like, well, you know, I did a murder and like at least I respect you for that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So they don't have neurotic worry. Their mm-hmm. only worry is like realistic ego worry of not wanting to get caught. Yep. So, and, and that's not the moral worry of superego. Of no, like, it's oh someone gosh, interfering like, with my behavior rather than this is a bad thing like, I shouldn't like, be doing. Oh, I did, I did this thing, it was exciting, but maybe I shouldn't have done mm. it. Like, you know, like say if you've ever taken drugs and worry about like whether you're going to get caught because mm. there'll be all these bad consequences and, and you would feel shame because everyone found out that something went yeah. wrong or something like that. Yeah, it's um, a different frame. That's different to like, oh, I'm going to do this thing and I, I got caught and that's a real inconvenience to me. Yeah, because I can't do that thing anymore. Yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff. So if they're caught in a lie, they learn to lie better. Mm-hmm. They don't learn not to lie, Yeah, right? If they learn anything at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Big disclaimer. <laughs> that's it. And they learn to rationalize their behaviors to others, whereas like a normal person would rationalize their behaviors to themselves, yeah. right? Domestic violence becomes a difference of opinion. Mm. Frustrated, so they act out. Conflict becomes action. And they essentially see nefarious motives in others, so they then act out out of a belief that they're defending themselves. Yeah. Right? So... That's like so. So they're quite. I mean, I know I talked for a bit, but psychodynamics is very, very simple. It is, approach. yeah. And actually, it feeds quite nicely into the next one, which is interpersonal. So essentially, interpersonal is focused on attachment. A- attachment, yes. <laughs> essentially, <laughs> which is why I'm doing this segment. <laughs> but really, it's focused on relational issues in antisocial personality disorder. So the first theorist that they talk about is Keisler, who viewed it at kind of two levels of severity, which kind of fits with what we're talking about with the DSM criteria before. They're kind of at the moderate level, it's kind of oppositional, irritable, rude, quick to argue, you know, ignore feelings of other people, resist cooperating, provoke arguments where they can. Severe, it's more that rebellious, vicious kind of nature where they exhibit blatant defiance, ruthlessly attack, torment and abuse others who get in their way. It's mm. kind of, it's far more savage. And then Benjamin came along who focused on the role of control in this disorder. So her idea was that people with antisocial personality disorder seek to control others while avoiding any control of them. So it's kind of like, I'll do what I want and no one will have anything over me, which Mm. makes sense. And she really makes a distinction between criminal behaviours and antisocial behaviours. So so just on that, so when I I studied criminology in my undergraduate and they talked about imprisonment and parole Mm -hmm. and and the example they talked about was which one worries you more, the guy who says... Okay, I've been I'm in jail, but you know, I'm now I'm out on parole or the guy who's in jail will say, No, I'll do more time in jail. So Yeah. When I'm released, you got nothing on me. Yep. <laughs> I know which one. 
So, yeah, continue. Yeah. Yeah, so she kind of split criminal behaviours from antisocial behaviours so that something like, say, fraud... Yep. Where it's something for personal gain, but it's not about controlling someone else. Like it might be, you know, like I'm thinking of like corporate fraud or something like that. It's mm. not about that relational aspect. It's kind of like I want this money Yeah, is distinct from something that's relational and about exerting control, like yeah, exploiting and, an individual. And sort of like savoring the pain. Exactly. Sort of yeah. Kind of and that those moments of exerting control make them feel quite proud. Like I did this. I, I won over you. Yeah. That's, yeah. And so a little bit like what, what you spoke about, they view the world as full of people who are inherently selfish. They're looking for power and control. So the world is quite a cruel place. Yeah. And so being antisocial is adaptive. It's what you have to do to survive. Yep. You have to squash other people before they squash you. Yeah. Yeah. According to the interpersonal perspective, this personality type develops through neglect, indifference, hostility and abuse as children. So there's kind of a lack of parental control and so they never learn how to control their own aggression, often intimidate their siblings for Mm. their own Mm. good. And then violent parents then provide a violent role model. Like this is the person who is in charge of the house and this is how they get it. Yeah. Yeah. She also emphasised the inconsistency of parenting and the role that that can play. So if you have someone, the example was someone who is substance affected most of the time and is kind of lax not really around and then you know something happens and they decide that they're going to bring everyone into line they're going to come down really hard on everyone it's kind of overbearing over controlling Mm -hmm. violent and then this creates a child who resents other people having control over them and values their own independence so they they try and create those situations where they do stuff that's outside everybody else's standards so yeah. in adolescence, they like doing unconventional things because they view it as independent rather than antisocial. Yeah. So like I'm shoplifting and skipping school because I'm doing my own thing. I'm my own person rather yeah. than that's against the rules of society. Yeah. They skew those things to be about independence and a positive thing rather yeah. than irresponsibility, which yeah. made a lot of sense to me. It is interesting as you talk about that, I, was, I think it's sort of, think of a few people I grew up with mm. like or came in contact with where yeah you can't be like why are you doing this stuff like I wouldn't understand like why why do you why are you going smoking bongs after school or yeah why do you get yourself into trouble all the time and that kind of has an arrogance to it that that feeling of kind of like well no I'm doing my I'm own doing thing my, but there, and there is like that kind of devil mm. may care kind of thing yeah like yeah it's interesting yeah and kind of like perplexing and you can see teachers at school being it's like why are you doing this like mm. you're a smart person like yeah actually the one that's just popped into my head i went to school with this girl who used to enjoy using a lighter to try and set the person next to them skirt a light under the table yeah and what she enjoyed was the moment when you realized and jumped up from your seat when you felt the warmth next to it and i think it was just enjoying that control it was that I'm doing this thing and isn't it funny that you're then yeah. freaking out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of those little things in adolescence that you kind of go, that's weird. Like that's... Yeah, so the... Cog- I don't understand that. So the, so the cognitive perspective has a few things to say about that. Mm-hmm. Basically, they talked about they suffer from boredom and need for excitement. Mm. So if you can only focus on the immediate, then you get bored quickly. Yeah. And then they talk about that that explains substance use abuse in this population because 
So substances create stimulation which distracts from the present. And it's kind of instant depending on what it is. And so to relieve boredom, they frequently stir things up. Mm. So nasty callous acts like what you're talking about. That provides experiences that are saturated with sensation, Mm. right? We view that as irresponsible, morally wrong, but they view it as like essential diversion from the emptiness of the present, right? Kind of exciting. Fills the space. You know, well, it sort of makes it life meaningful Mm. for them. Which is is sort of like a really backward kind of way. Yeah. So intelligence is not related to being antisocial. Mm. So you can be highly intelligent and be antisocial, or you can be uh, in this book they just said mentally retarded, Mm. uh, which is sort of a old fashioned, uh, old fashioned, or two thousand two. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 surprisingly new. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, but so you know, genius level IQ or low IQ, Mm. but. What's interesting is there's like there's this lack of planning. Mm. There's something up with their planning. There's failure to do so. There's lack of foresight that you, if someone's really really smart, you wouldn't really expect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like how like if you're really really smart, well, how, why are you doing this stuff? Like you're just gonna get caught, man. Yeah. Like, you're gonna get caught yeah. eventually. Yeah. Surely you know that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Again, it's just like associated with this indifference to right or wrong as a core mm-hmm. problem. Morality just gets in the way of actions. It's interesting because. My honours thesis was on this idea about personal goals. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about personal goals and what you do every day, like achieving goals feels good, failing goals feels bad, Mm. and you have this structure of you can view goals very, very concrete to I'm thirsty, so I need to go and get a drink of water. Yeah. It's very, very concrete to like abstract. I Um, want to be this person. Like I want to be a good parent, right, or something like that, which is kind of I want to be a good parent there's lots of lower level goals mm. of increasing concreteness yeah. and further away from abstract. So this idea that in psychodynamic, like we were talking about before, like you have the mm. ego ideals, which is like a higher order goal yeah. that becomes like a driving force for you mm. in your life. Like, so for example, like I wanted to be a psychologist, so I knew I had to study to a certain level at, at school yeah. and then I needed to get into university. Mm. And then from there I need to get into honors and then to postgraduate program. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then... Job. You know that yeah. kind of stuff. So you know, there's like all from all from this one goal, yeah. right? And so they were saying that these higher order goals just aren't developed in any mm. socials, right? Their stream of consciousness is more immediate, mm-hmm. more egocentric. So they only see the immediate. So they and they become essentially fixated and frustrated. So lack of insight follows from that. Poor yeah. behavioral controls and predatory actions follow from that. Mm. So what's interesting is they succumb to lower level pleasure. Mm-hmm. So like. It seems to be very, very salient to them. Like it pulls them off track. So they might, the example I said was like, you you might be charm yourself into a good job, Mm. but then get dismissed because you stole something at work. Yeah. Right. That was like cheap or inconsequential, but you stole it and then you get in trouble. Or like, you know, you don't turn up because you had something more fun to do Mm. and then you get fired. Yeah. Right. So... From a cognitive perspective, they think that they're deficient in creating mental models of relating action to consequence mm-hmm. or that these mental models are like vulnerable to the influence of immediate gratification. So they're not like robust or yeah. something like that. So, yeah. which kind of has this really nice sort of validity, face validity to it. Mm. There was a quote about this guy called Gary Gilmore who I looked up. There's a really great Wikipedia yeah. entry, Gary Gilmore, and he got he he got executed in the United States, and he 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 shot uh, and killed a couple of people, mm. 
And he was quoted as saying, until I got caught or shot by the police or something like that, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't planning, I was just doing. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And the other thing that gets at the flavor of that. So. It's quite childlike. Yeah. Like that kind of, I do this because I want to do this. Well, yeah, I'm I'm just doing it. Yeah. Right? And then when you watch movies and you're kind of like, like, what, what's this guy doing? Mm. Are they going to get caught? But then, like, I think a lot of time they, I don't think they do get caught because no. they're scary or mm. people are scared that they're, like, so people just, like, leave them alone. Yeah. You know? So, I think there's that kind of thing. And yeah. because if you confront them, mm. you there's an issue. Get, yeah. Because you could get hurt. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to reason with them. Beck, Aaron Beck talks about core beliefs in the antisocials. So basically, it's like need to see themselves as strong or independent, which is sort of what you're mm-hmm. talking about. Survival orientated beliefs might be like, I must look out for myself. If I'm not the aggressor, I'm the victim. It's okay to take advantage of someone who allows it. These kind of beliefs yeah. like justify their emotion, yeah. uh, their actions. And so basically, like in just really, really reading it, it's like my thought was like, that's just like they're stunted yeah. morally, yeah. emotionally. Yeah. You know, like it's it's a very, very childlike mm. way of doing it. Yeah. That kind of thing. So. Hmm. So the last perspective is evolutionary and this one's pretty short probably compared to what we've talked about before. Essentially, this perspective views antisocial and narcissistic as related or along a continuum so that if it's within normal range, it's kind of focused on your own needs and desires. If it's pathological, it's focused on satisfying yourself to the exclusion of everybody else. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if someone else is hurt by it. This is what I want. And so they kind of highlight the difference that in narcissistic PD, it's quite passive. You know, other people should do what I want because I'm right, entitled, superior, etc. Yeah. Whereas in antisocial PD, it's active. I'll take from other people they, if they won't provide me with what I want. Like I'll seek that out and squash them. Yeah. Then the evolutionary perspective also highlights kind of it kind of merges together what we've been talking about. So it brings together that could be a biological basis or it could be about that kind of psychodynamic stuff or whatever, but it's bringing everything together and going, well, everything interacts in kind of like a cocktail to produce this person. And so yeah. we have to take into account everything. Yeah. That, you know, people don't develop just from biology or just from social experiences. It's what happens along the way. Yeah, and they talked about that difference between psychopath versus sociopath, which mm. we talked at the top yeah. top of the episode. That you know, really, those those things are just sort of abstract, abstract, yeah. abstractations. Yeah, is that the right word? I'm not sure. Abstractions. Abstractions. Yeah. Um, that that that's what they are. Like mm. it's kind of like from a conceptual level, but really in practice, you wouldn't really get that. No. Like it, it, it is much more of a, like a, a merging. Mm. I mean, I think there are definitely case reports of... Yeah, you know, pretty people, clear. People sort of saying, well, you know, this kid was always a bad kid. Yeah. Despite sort of reasonable parents. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. It is. But yeah, that's essentially evolutionary in a nutshell. Jeez, I wish all like, of them were that quick. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about mm. substance use and then we'll wrap up. Yeah. So hopefully you've been sticking with us so far. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about substance use a lot and, and certainly when I worked in a, like I worked, my first job was in a drug and alcohol clinic. Yeah. So we had a methadone clinic there. So methadone is a opiate substitute and there's also a thing called Suboxone, which you can also have as an opiate substitute. So that's prescribed at a certain level and that stops your withdrawal mm. from heroin. Heroin, yep. And it's what we call harm minimization. It mm. helps to stabilize people and things like that. So, and we would have, oh, there's certainly a number of people in that program 
who would attend daily to pick up their dose and that they definitely had full-blown ASPD or definitely, and and a lot of them just had features of it. Some of them were very scary guys, you know, and there was times when this, the, you know, we were like, okay, so everyone has to leave in pairs. Mm -hmm. Everyone leaves together on time, that kind of thing. We're going through a particularly difficult patch with a particular person. Yeah, there's certainly, I remember feeling like a sense of, that presence. There was a couple of people. There was like a real presence of like mm. just defiance. Yeah. Uh, which is really, really fascinating. Mm. So I think that there's several pathways of reinforcement that lead people with antisocial personality or personality traits mm. to substance use, right? So one of them, which is they've got no moral qualms about using a substance. Yep. So like, so when I think about like the first time I tried a cigarette mm. as a teenager. You like, knew that it was against the law. Well, well, I knew oh, that, that it was okay. like that if my parents found out that That'd that was their problem, yeah. right? Yeah. And these guys just wouldn't have that. Mm. Using heroin, which is associated with crime, yeah, it's not going to be a problem for them. So yeah. there's no regard for the, the damage that drug use does on life direction as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like don't that, do drugs because it could really ruin your life. Like that instant gratification versus yeah. what comes down the road. You know, and I think a lot of, a lot of people will try stuff knowing that maybe this is bad. Yeah. But still sort of maybe try it, but then not pick it up, right? Yeah, there's kind of a cautiousness there or a sort yeah. of a, this is a once-off. Or, yeah, yeah, like oh, I'm kind of curious yeah. and maybe I'll do it a little bit or something. Mm. And then some of those people will get caught in a drug addiction, but mostly perhaps not. Mm. Whereas like these guys will just be like, yeah, yeah. like whatevs. Immediate gratification overrides it. They're just seeking sensation. Yeah. Another way is that they use substances Using substances means they defy the ruling culture mm-hmm. and they get like feelings of power and strength. They perhaps sense a brotherhood yep. with this quote-unquote deviant mm. peer group. They can be attracted to the money, power, sex that's associated with dealing drugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, perhaps there's a self-medication aspect of blotting out mm. feelings of whatever like stunted moral feelings yeah. they do have. Yeah. So, or if they've got other disorders like, you know, schizophrenia or dissociation mm. or something like that. So... It makes a lot of sense. It's, it's quite simple, yeah. really, in a way. Like, you know, they're seeking stimulation. Yeah. It gives it to them. Mm. Right? And very quickly. Yeah. 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 I, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, I think like from a personal experience of work, working with someone who, you know, they would describe, they just didn't really care if yeah. they broke the law. Yeah. Like, you know, they just kind of thought it was funny. Yeah. Like they stole stuff. And like, I remember this guy said, oh, you know, there was a car with a boat strapped to the roof, like a tinny. Yeah. Like some of the mates stole it mm. and they ran off down the street and there was a basically like a boat with like legs right yeah like <laughs> yeah. on the street in the middle yeah. of the night in in inner city melbourne yeah. and i mean it's funny but mm. like you know but it, yeah no. <laughs> if you think about it in context there was no yeah. there was no kind of qualms about it so mm. interesting so look thanks for sticking with us we're going to yeah. take a break yeah and we're going to come back with something much more light-hearted yeah yeah i think so it was in two shrink spot see you soon Suggest reasonable explanations for things. But as we try to widen and make more consistent... So we're on our break. Usually what we do at this point is just say thanks for listening. We really enjoy doing uh, Tushing's Pod and we hope you enjoy listening. We are munching down on some chocolate ripple biscuits. We're not sure that these exist internationally. They're I don't of, think they do. They're kind of a cousin of an Oreo. But like not as dark. 
yeah. and thinner. Yeah, and they kind of and there's no like cream no, in the middle. Dry. And you use and, <laughs> and you and you use these biscuits, interestingly enough, to mix cream and sugar together. Mm. And then you get a chocolate biscuit and then you cream and sugar, chocolate biscuit, cream and sugar, cream and sugar, like and then like basically sandwich them all together and then smother them all with more cream. Yeah. And that's and a chocolate goes, ripple cake. Yeah, it Acrobat. goes kind of soft. Yeah. And then we call that cake, even though it really should be like a chocolate ripple it's sandwich impi- log. It's the, it's the epitome of like 70s cooking. And it I, is, and, and it's I, lasted. Yeah, and I grew up with it basically, like my childhood was eating this cake mm. and hating it. Yeah. And then having it as an adult and going, oh. Not bad. My parents must have put a lot of alcohol in it. Right, so I really? grew up with like like brandy or rum, like soaking the biscuits. Yeah, or? and so like as I uh, I made it recently, hence the biscuits in the house, mm. and it's like oh, this is really pleasant. Interesting. Did you do it with the? Whiskey? No, no, without the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, the children were gonna eat it anyway. So uh, well, we have, obviously your parents didn't mind. <laughs> no, they didn't. Well, they're too busy you know, smoking. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, so we're listening to Shrek's <laughs> part. <laughs> I, Indeed we are. And what I love about this segment is that for once, Hunter's gone silly. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So, uh, look, really, really, if you like the show, please rate and review the show through yeah. your podcast app. And also, you know, people seem to talk about podcasts through word of mouth. So, you tell someone mm. who uh, you know who might be interested. Or if you're on Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter and perhaps retweet the episode link, that kind of thing. So, Yeah. Um, more people hear about it, the better. Yeah. And then yeah. maybe if more people hear about it, we could start mm. doing ads. I'd like to do ads. I like to think that all these internet podcast delivery things mm. are all on like one street. Yeah. Like, you know, so there's like the food delivery thing on one end of the street and there's the razor and then there's a watch factory and yeah. there's a sunglass factory and then there's a match factory. Yeah. And then, then there's the audio books. And there's the audio books. And then there's like on the other side of the road, there's like the the, the, the mortgage brokers. Yeah. The insurance, the insurance guys. Yeah. What, what else? Yeah. Uh, Websites, anything service based. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you, you've got you kind of got the, the website. Service thing mm. on the other side of the yeah. thing, and then manufacturing on the other yeah. on, on one side. Yeah, and they get a call and go, "Hey, this podcast needs <laughs> immediately needs several mattresses that will pop out of a box, and they're ready to go." <laughs> what a magical world we live in! Uh, good. So we're going to. Uh, that's the end of the break. Two string spot. So welcome back to Two Strengths Pod. We are wrapping up today with our usual things we came across. Something weird and wonderful that each of us have stumbled across while browsing endless series of articles. Although mine was a little purposeful and self-diagnostic this week. as <laughs> seems to happen every now and then. So. Wait, where, where are you taking us? Well, so I was at an art gallery this week, doing the MoMA exhibit that's come Mm. to Melbourne and I noticed that I was seeing faces in pictures that my friend said were not there or kind of went what clown and then we looked at the description and there was no mention of a clown I just was certain that the abstract shapes looked like a clown and so then I was thinking about whether it was a thing because people look for like faces in clouds and Mm -hmm. stuff like that Mm -hmm. I went hunting for an article and happened to find the 2014 Ig Nobel winner. Have you heard about Ig Nobel? Maybe. It's like the cousin of the Nobel Prize. Yeah. And it's kind of general philosophy is that it's something that makes you laugh and then makes you think. Mm-hmm. So there's been some quite odd 
things and it's across all areas of science. This one's a bit neuro, but so it's called Seeing Jesus in Toast, mm-hmm. uh, Neural and Behavioral Correlates of Face Pareidolia. Uh, it has a name. <laughs> <laughs> There's a web, website called Channing, I think it's like, like instead of Channing Tatum, mm-hmm. there's like Channing Tato. Tato. <laughs> Is it just photos? <laughs> it's a picture of Channing Tatum and then there's like a picture of a potato. <laughs> I will be looking at that as soon it's as we finish. So great. <laughs> All different potatoes? Mm. Mm. It matches the different pictures. Oh, awesome. I will hunt that down. But so this is by Lou and colleagues, publishing Cortex in 2014. And so they talked about how pareidolia, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but let's just say that's what it is, is the tendency to see patterns where none exist. Mm-hmm. So face in the clouds, Jesus in the toast, Mary in a tortilla. Mm-hmm. That it's kind of well documented, but we don't know why it exists yeah. or whether it's actually doing anything neuro-wise. Yeah, and there's also like, there's another example, mm-hmm. which is to do with music. And synchronicity and stuff like that. Mm. So, And so the classic example is, I think it's Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. You press play yep. on that as Wizard of Oz, Lion Stops Roaring, yep. like at the start. Yep. And that the music is like perfectly timed. Syncs up. But they say that actually like it's just BS. But people Our brains kind just of, look for that. Yeah. Yeah, rhythm. Yeah, look for the, the pattern. Interesting. We're yep. weird creatures. Yep. Uh, so this study looked at five types of images. They had sort of easy to detect faces in a blurry blob, mm-hmm. hard to detect faces, and then easy to detect letters, hard to detect letters to mm-hmm. see if there was a difference between faces and letters, mm-hmm. and then pure noise images. So they got people to do this training period where they looked at pictures that were a mixture of different things. So in the face condition, it was kind of like different levels of difficulty with the faces and then the pure noise kind of images in between. They said to them, half of these, you'll find a face, half you won't. And then when the testing bit came, they just gave them a whole series of images that were just pure noise. There was no face in them and said the same thing. Half, Mm -hmm. there'll be faces, half there won't. They also whacked them in an fMRI to look at their brain activation because, you know, why not? So I won't go through all I the results. I don't have that much money to be able to do that anyway. It is amazing, isn't it? Like, like yeah. Trying to get. I mean, they use trying to get trying to get my university to spring for a couple of questionnaires. Yeah. So, oh no, can't do it. Can't do it. Too expensive. Anyway, they did use university students, the general fodder for like research. White female middle class. Uh, right-handed. Chinese. Oh okay. Yeah, just so to mix things up a bit. Yeah. yeah. But I think they were all male. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. Um. So. There were so many beautiful charts and graphs and images of how they made these images and so much detail, a lot of which went over my head because I don't really know the mechanics of fMRI that well. Mm-hmm. It, I'll skip to the... <laughs> <laughs> it's a scan. It's a scan. It's a scan that shows where things are activated yeah. when you're thinking about particular things or if feeling you put a dead things. fish in it? You find stuff. Find stuff. Yep. It's, it's a previous pod. Um, Alive. <laughs> um so what they found was that there was no difference in levels of pareidolia across faces and letters. Mm-hmm. But if you're higher in one, you're higher in the other. Yep. So you kind of just have a general propensity for it. Yep. And then they found that if you saw a face, the area of the brain that's activated when you see a real face was activated. Yeah. So you genuinely Seeing it. see it, yep. essentially. And that that side wasn't activated with letters. 
So yep. it's kind of face specific. And the stronger your pareidolia, so the more often that you said that there were faces, the stronger the response. So like it lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, it makes sense. Which all it? kind of makes sense. And then if you saw a letter, only one side of the brain lit up and it wasn't the, the face side. Yep. Yeah. So it all kind of made sense and it provided me with some mild comfort that I could see faces and my friend could not. But I don't know that they really got to the why. No, like I was reading it for the why. Yeah, but they just sort of said, well, I, like it's descriptive. Yes, some people It do. is because the activation, we have the activation because we see the like yep. circular logic. I got two things. Uh, one is... Hang uh, on. How did you find two things in the space of when I saw you the other day and you said, I have no things? Oh, uh, well, you know, I'm resourceful. Mm, yeah. <laughs> no, so I, um, a friend of mine has just released a podcast mm-hmm. called The Fitzroy Diaries. About Fitzroy, I'm assuming. About Fitzroy, which is an inner city suburb in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And it's really worth checking out the sort of short episodes. And it's kind of like a stream of consciousness about the world when you're living in the inner city. Like, if you know Fitzroy, it, it's very Fitzroy, but yeah. I think if you are familiar with inner cities mm. across the world... It's got that same feel. I certainly listened to it and found myself, you know, the visual picture being painted. Mm. It's kind of like nice. David Sedaris' observation, but without the black humour. Okay. <laughs> I think that makes sense. Yeah. Um, interesting, as a mm. link, because what got me thinking about it, was, is that they, they talk about one of the characters mm. that she observes. She calls him a sociopath. And then a bit later in the episode, calls him a psychopath. Like, mm, mm. definitional issues. Yeah. <laughs> Is this a critique or a shout uh, out? Or a it's a shout out. It's a shout out. <laughs> it's a critique. Um, so, With some tips. Uh, so that's the, Fitz, the Fitzroy Diaries. You can, you can find that on your podcast apps. Mm-hmm. The thing I was going to, the, my article that I got was, actually, l- let me back up a sec. When you snack, mm-hmm. right, are you influenced by other people snacking? Yeah. Yeah, talk to me about that. Well, I find that I, my timing of my snacks will depend on who's snacking around me. So if I'm in, if I'm in an office mm-hmm. and I smell someone else eating or hear them, mm-hmm. I might have a snack when I hadn't considered it before. And then if someone talks about a particular food or mm-hmm. has something, mm-hmm. I will often change what my snack is to something similar because they'll remind me of a particular there's a Taste, kind of like a trigger. A uh, trigger. Yeah. What about like social pressure? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I definitely will, yeah. will do that at yeah, like friends' places or stuff like that when I'm perhaps I'm not hungry. Yeah. But they've got stuff. Yeah. So like, so I got this is like in my workplace, there are a lot of cakes and things mm. that they seem to have a bake off relatively frequently patients yeah. drop off cakes and things to say thank you for helping me get through my cancer treatment yeah all this kind of stuff particular teams where they kind of they all sort of band together and then we'll like eat and i think what i noticed is go to this morning meeting and struggle there's lots of cakes there it's like come on man it's like 9 30 like yeah. i don't need to eat this i'm not and then ready like to eat this, but... 20 minutes later i've had like three pieces of cake yeah. like it's like, so it's like what like what's going on here yeah so I found this paper, it was published in Health Psychology this year, 2018, by Benjamin Schutz and Papadakis and Ferguson, and they're from the University of Tasmania here in Australia. It's called Situation-Specific Social Norms as Mediators of Social Influence on Snacking. Mm -hmm. So, it's basically just what we've been talking about. starts off saying that snacks are key contributors to overall energy intake. So, they give an estimate of 17 to 40% of daily energy intake mm-hmm. is derived from snacks. Yep. Which I thought was really interesting. So in Australia it's about thirty five percent 
Hmm. United States was like 24%. Finland comes in at 40% of huh. the daily. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's interesting also if you piece it together with like meal sizes and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, that's yeah. It. So, they kind of talk about that like snacks are... We, we snack not just because of energy yeah. depletion. So snacking is guided by stimuli or cues to eating. Mm-hmm. So this can be internal. You can be happy yeah. and you eat. External, so advertising. Mm-hmm. And they talk about social cues. Seeing someone else eat appears to be one of the most relevant and salient cues to snack. Mm. Increase the odds of consuming three to fivefold. Which wow. Which I, I thought was really, really fascinating. Cause yeah. I, and, and it was like, yeah, you know what? Like I do find it hard mm. to sit in a group of people who are, who are snacking in this food there and not eat. Yeah, and often it's got those kind of social things about it being rude if you're out or something like that. Yeah, so nice segue. They Mm. talk about like social norms. Mm. So it's like so it's either descriptive, so perceptions of what other people doing, Mm -hmm. or injunctive, which is perceptions about what other people approve of. Yeah, right. So they're talking about the most research is descriptive, like descriptive social norms, and less on this kind of like what do people. Prove of so they basically set out to investigate this sample of sixty one adults, mm-hmm. forty two women, where they all had a healthy or average mm-hmm. BMI. So what they did was over two weeks, fourteen days, they had got event based snacking reports and randomly timed assessments, mm-hmm. and they assessed the presence of others eating and momentary perceptions of injunctive norms. So this was this like perceived appropriateness and encouragement mm-hmm. were measured. Results wise they found that social cues predicted snacking and that momentary perceptions of appropriateness and encouragement partially mediated that effect. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, which is basically what we've been talking about. Yeah. So. Well, they've got pretty diagrams as well. Yeah. That, oh, like, yeah, really pretty diagrams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of boxes, arrows. Mm. Uh, nice. Some some dotted lines, some ar- some more dotted arrows. It's yeah. It's very... Yeah. Very good. Ten <laughs> <laughs> it's like we, we do on two strings pod. We do love a good diagram. Yeah. So basically, they said that social cues predicted predicted increased odds of snacking. Mm-hmm. They were like just really interested in fluctuations of individual perception of social norms mm. in these real life situations, yeah. and these momentary perceptions they they actually did impact. So mm. it wasn't just you eat, so I eat. Yeah. Like yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So so this. <laughs> So this is a great example mm. of wordiness. Yeah. So the finding is in line with the normative model of social influence on eating, which posits that in the presence of palatable foods and in the absence of satiety inhibitory cues, people use external social cues to gauge whether it's appropriate to eat and how much. So if there's nice food and I don't feel hungry, that social information predicts if I'm going to eat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good food. Not hungry. Good food, not hungry. I'll people, eat. people socially encourage yeah. it. I do it. <laughs> Yay, psychology. Um, and hello to the authors. It's a very impressive piece, but so that was kind of pleasing to know that. Was there it was comforting to know science. that your meeting eating is? Um, <laughs> I didn't realize it was going to rhyme until I said it. <laughs> is um, essentially not your fault. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's yeah. my team's fault. Yeah. Um, oh no, hang on. I'm being ASPD and rationalizing. Blaming others. Everybody has a contributing part to your eating. <laughs> but it, I think... We're all it, in it together. But it does get, get at, like, at why it's difficult, even though no one's actually pressuring you. So. Yeah. So uh, I think that's about all for this episode. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. I know it's been a long one. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be continuing with our personality 
adventure next time. Uh, in the meantime, please rate and review us and we look forward to chatting to you soon. See ya. Thank you.